Hi there, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, a weekly podcast that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Colbert. That's okay, right? Hey, don't forget to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over at facebook.com slash pod. So this week's trivia question could be considered a little bit morbid, I guess. A little bit, maybe. I don't know. The first song of the rock and roll era to go to number one in the U.S. after the artist died was this one. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding in 1967. Watching the ships roll in Then I watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the Dock of the Bay Here's my question. What was the second song to do that? I'll have the answer for you later on in the show. Okay, second song in the rock era to go to number one after the artist died. That's an easy one, right? Yeah, maybe. So we're talking about Devo today, and Devo is a band that has been around longer than you probably think. The band's name comes from the concept of de-evolution, the idea that we've stopped evolving and are instead beginning to regress. Uh, a couple of art, uh, art students rather, at Kent State University, Gerald Casal and Bob Lewis, created a few art pieces around this concept. Around the same time, Casal was performing with a local band called 156075, which later became known as the Numbers Band. They met keyboardist Mark Mothersbaugh around around 1970, and he brought a more lighthearted feel to the operation. Well, it wasn't long after that, in May of 1970, that the Kent State shootings took place, and the whole de-evolution joke became a little bit more serious in their heads. Kent State has frequently been cited as the event that launched Devo. They first played as the Sextet Devo in 1973 at the Kent State Performing Arts Festival, and the performance wound up in a short film called The Complete Truth About De-Evolution. Eventually, the video, which won a prize at the Ann Arbor Film Festival, caught the attention of David Bowie, who managed to get the group a contract with the Warner Music Group. By this point, the lineup was Mark Mothersbaugh and his brother Bob, who played electric guitar, uh, Alan Myers on drums, Gerald Casal on bass, and his brother Bob on keyboards and rhythm guitar. The track you're listening to now, Jocko Homo, was the B-side of their first single. But they gained national attention when they re-recorded their cover of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, something I talked about briefly back in episode 35, and they performed that song and this one, Jocko Homo, on Saturday Night Live on October 14, 1978. But it was two albums later, in May of 1980, that they released the album Freedom of Choice, which can say, uh, contained their best-known hit, Whip It. Devo was showing a definite move toward a synth-pop-slash-new-wave direction, and Freedom of Choice really cemented it. The first single was this one, Girl You Want, which Warner Brothers wanted to release as a single because they thought it sounded a little bit like the next, My Sharona. In fact, at least one music critic actually compared it to My Sharona. But Girl You Want didn't do much at all, although a cover by Robert Palmer was a moderate success in the UK, and it peaked at number 22 in Japan. Okay. 
With It was the second single from the album, and while nobody really thought it was going to do much either, a couple things came together to make it a hit, but I will come to those in a minute. In an interview with SongFacts.com, Gerald Casal said that Whip It started out as a pastiche of the parodies that Thomas Pinchon had written in his book Gravity's Rainbow. Both Casal and Mothersbaugh have said in a few different places that the lyrics were meant to be a kind of pep talk for President Jimmy Carter during the 1980 presidential election. The song has a little bit of a Dale Carnegie, you can do it attitude. And at the same time, there are some very violent undertones in those lyrics. In fact, Steve Huey, in his review for All Music, uh, called it, quote, a sardonic portrait of a general problematic aspect of the American psyche, the predilection for using force and violence to solve problems, vent frustration, and prove oneself to others, unquote. In the meantime, the band was still putting together song ideas, and the songs usually arose out of snippets of stuff that they'd bring in and assemble together. So Mark Mothersbaugh came in with a few different things, and one of them was a drum beat that Casal found interesting, and that became the basis of Whippet's drum beat. Casal uh, said that there were several pieces that went into Whippet, but they all had like different tempos and such, and so it took a bit for him to layer them together into a single song, and then they took his lyrics and they put them on top of it. Mother's Ball created the main riff by changing the editing slightly from the main riff in Roy Orbison's Oh Pretty Woman. So I mentioned before, there wasn't a great deal expected to uh, come from Whippet, but a couple of things brought it into broader focus for listeners. One was that a disc jockey named Cal Rudman uh, took a liking to the song. Now, Rudman was a bit of a tastemaker in those days, and partly because he had a syndicated radio program. So the song got some airplay and became especially popular in the Southeast, uh, particularly in Florida. That got the buzz going. The second thing that spurred interest in the song is the misconception that the song was about like masturbation or sadomasochism or some other such kinky thing. And frankly, nobody wanted to disabuse them of the notion because nobody wanted would have enjoyed the truth. Finally, and in a similar vein, there's the promotional video, which the band made in their rehearsal studio on a pretty small budget. Originally, they didn't have much of an idea for the video, but then they learned about the weird theories that people had about the lyrics, and that gave them an idea. Since people thought the song was about S&M, well, why not give them a little S&M? The tough part was doing it in a way that was TV-friendly. Uh, Gerald Casal says he found an old girly magazine from the early 1960s, something called The Dude. And in the magazine was an article about an actor who had fallen on hard times. So he moved to Arizona and he opened up a dude ranch where he and his wife would charge people money to stay. And every day around noon, he would go to the corral and use a 12-foot bullwhip to whip his wife's clothes off. The clothes were breakaway, so they'd come apart easily, and he never injured her doing this. The band thought this was a laugh, and they made that the basis for the video. The band would play in the corral, while Mark Mothersbaugh whipped off a pioneer woman's clothes. Now, the whip never actually struck the woman in the video. Her clothes were attached to fishing line and just yanked off with each whip crack. Although the whip did manage to knock the cigarette holder out of the actress's mouth for real. Crazy? Well, of course it was. But at that point, the video industry was still pretty much in its infancy, and MTV had maybe three cable companies as affiliates. Plus, they were starved for material. There wasn't much in the way of gatekeepers then. Nobody really cared, so MTV started playing the video a lot. By then, the record had been out for nearly a year, and in fact had made it to number 14 on the Billboard Hot 100. But it actually made a small comeback as a result. 
Unfortunately, that relationship between Devo and MTV soured, and subsequent videos wound up being either censored for their content or rejected because the song wasn't a hit. And while Devo has maintained a devoted following for over 40 years, Whip It remains their only song to make it to the top 40 on the Billboard chart. Now, the song has been covered a few times by artists such as Pearl Jam and Love and Death, and oddly enough, there's this version by a band called Devo 2.0, which was a Disney creation that covered Devo songs for a teenage audience. Gerald Casal rewrote a bunch of the lyrics to make them Disney-friendly, but Whip It didn't really need any revisions. The song has also been used in a few commercials, perhaps most recently for the Swiffer line of cleaning products. Uh, in the Swiffer ad, a woman cleans her house while performing re- uh, jerky robotic motions while we hear a slightly altered version of the song wherein Whip It Good becomes Swiffer's Good. Now, because Devo got a bad publishing deal back in 1978, they only have control to half the rights to their songs. So when they allow a song to be used in commercials, they actually re-record the song so that they can keep the performance rights. So that's genuinely Mark Mothersbaugh and the rest of Devo performing in the Swiffer commercial with the new words provided by Procter & Gamble. Originally, they were going to sing it as, You Must Swiff It, but it turned out that copywriting that phrase and all the future implications would cost Procter & Gamble hundreds of thousands of dollars, so they left it as Swiffer. But the song has been used in a couple of other commercials, including Twix candy bars, uh, Pringles potato chips, and Gateway computers. And in the Gateway ad, which Mother Boss says is one of his favorites, we see a truck driving down the highway, and riding shotgun beside the driver is a cow, because Gateway was founded in Iowa, and the boxes that the computers are packed in had cow markings on them. The cow produces a CD marked Cow Mix, and when they play it, this song comes on, and the driver and the cow sing along with it. It's weird, and it's cute, and I'll link it on the website. And it is time to answer today's trivia question. So back on page two, I noted that Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding was the first song of the rock era to go to number one on the Billboard chart posthumously. Redding uh, finished recording the song on December 8th, 1967, and then he died two days later in a plane crash. So they did some hurry-up work on the post-production, and they released the song quickly. And the song went to number one. But the question today was what was the second song to top the chart after the artist's death? And that would be this song by Janis Joplin. Busted flat in Ben Rouge, waiting for a train, when I was feeling near as faded as my jeans. Me and Bobby McGee. And as it turns out, the circumstance was much the same in that she finished recording on October 1st, 1970, and then she died three days later. The band took their time, though, finishing the entire Pearl album, so the uh, single wasn't released until January. It went to number one on Billboard's Hot 100 the week of March 20th, 1971, and it stayed there for two weeks. Now, some of you might have come up with Jim Croce's Time in a Bottle, but that was the third song uh, to go to number one. But here's what else is interesting. Time in a Bottle was actually recorded and released two years prior to his death. But when Croce died, 
radio stations started looking through his back catalog and said, ooh, this would be a poignant song to play. So they started playing it as an album track, which pressured the label, which I believe was ABC Dunhill, to release a single that eventually went to number one. And that's a full lid on another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with somebody and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email me at howgoodpodcast at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditispod. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod or you can check out the show's website, howgooditis.com, where you might find a few extra bits. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, whoa, another request. We're going to find out how good it is when you have a total eclipse of the heart. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time.